0: Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 13. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, the doctor, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. How are Hello, you doing? Hello, Joe. It is great to be back on the show. Feels like we missed more weeks than we have just because it has been, th- these have been long weeks. We haven't, we only missed one week. We. I know, but it feels like the last three weeks have been six or seven.
1: Yeah, I've done a lot of things in the last seven days.
0: Yeah. <sighs> I think I've added some more gray hairs. Hmm. I've got plenty. You can have some of
1: mine. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Do they match? (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't need a transplant. We have been uh, working a lot lately, but I think that the workload is going to die down now. So I'm going to be able to get some regular work weeks done. Cool. And I love working from home. Are you still working from home?
1: Still working from home. Still sitting in the same wooden chair I've sat in for the last two months. Nice. Yeah. Do you work at the, the at like a the kitchen table? Do you have a, a home office? Actually, I I could I have a spare bedroom. I could use the home office. Yeah. But I literally have a TV tray and a chair in my living room. Nice. Near the window. Oh. That's why I'm sitting there. I could sit in the kitchen if I wanted to. But I've also got a um you know porch furniture out on my front porch, wicker furniture. Mm. And so if it's warm enough to sit without shivering. And, and not too humid that you're getting stuffy. Not so humid like it's going to be in a month or so It's just miserable. I'll sit mm-hmm. out on the porch and enjoy the birds and the neighbor's dog
0: and the kids running around. And I was outside today on our front porch and listening to the bird songs. And I heard one that just really sounded like a laser gun. Like, and I was like, what yeah. is that? And I look over, it. it's a male cardinal up on my fence. And I, I say to my wife, didn't that sound like a laser gun? And she listens and then hears it again. And it's like, yeah, it sounds, it doesn't sound like a normal bird call.
1: Impressive. Very interesting stuff. Have we talked about bird calls on the show yet? No, we should. Well, because I've got an app that I've been using all spring and it is amazing and fun. Is it an Android or is it, what's the basis? I believe you can get yeah. it. No, you can definitely get it on your Borg phones if you like. What's that? Your <coughs> Mac phone? Your iPhone. Sorry, <laughs> your iPhones.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah uh-huh. can, Whatever.
1: Can, yep. It's actually recording right now. Well, I'm not a bird. <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, it's called BirdNet. It's by Cornell Labs. Nice. If you're on a, an iPhone, I think you just search for Cornell Labs. If you're on a Android, search for BirdNet. Just BirdNet. Be BirdNet. And what it does is it'll record any ambient sound. And when you hear something you want to target, you hit pause and you can highlight the area where you hear the bird's call and hit analyze. That is great. And it'll tell you, oh, human, homo sapiens, almost certain.
0: Are you serious? I thought it was just, oh, I am a human. Golly. The bird app knows that I'm a human. Well, or uh, cars are also human. Would it be able to identify then other beasts besides birds? um not sure maybe not that one because it's not meant for it but yeah
1: but i've I've, theoretically i've pegged about 20 different bird species in fact i got a red-headed woodpecker today which is hard because they don't sit there and call and call and call they make they go and stop really yeah but i heard it and hit record and sure enough he did it again one more time boom so i've got about 20 species recorded and it's really neat because all these you know all my life i've grown up with these sounds. But I was never able to link it to one particular bird species.
0: Yeah, to keep up with bird calls, you got to be really dedicated. Yeah, this makes it a lot easier and a lot of fun. That is neat. But anyone could enjoy that on their phone if they're out jogging. Like we have friends that do want to jog and they do jog in uh, local historical battleground parks. And I I heard bird calls out there and I was just thinking this is a fun place to check the bird calls out.
1: Yeah, that would be a great place. In fact, I went jogging this morning on the uh, Silver Comet Trail and I went maybe a half a mile and there was a giant feather on the ground. So I picked it up and I ran the rest of the way with this feather in my hand. (laughs) But I thought it was a red-shouldered hawk. Red
0: shouldered hawk.
1: Yes. And I put on You outfit. guys plenty of hawks and Falcons around here. Yes, we do. And I, I put a really dumb haiku on um on Facebook, and someone said, No, that's not a red-shouldered hawk. That mm. looks like a barred owl. Oh,
0: Lots so of owls.
1: Okay. I said, you know, feather ID looked it up, barred owl. Sure enough, it's a barred owl feather. It's beautiful.
0: Owls are my favorite bird creatures. That that is why my podcast website is nightowl.fm. Yeah. You know? Cool. And if you pay attention to the logo, you might think it was some sort of like stylized podcasting icon logo image. It's actually a stylization of an owl's eye. So, really? Yeah. It's my it, right so anyone who visits the Night Owl website where you can get the Equinox podcast online, if you go to the, our website, you'll be able to see the cool, the slick, the modern graphical interpretation of an owl's eye.
1: So I'm, I'm failing here because I went straight to one of the back end places I just want to go straight to the site itself. Did you get it? <laughs>
0: no. Just owl.fm. Yeah, I know. But it, it, it keeps on adding the, the rest of, an, uh, of a longer URL.
1: Oh, that is an owl. Yeah. That's really cool. Super subtle. <laughs> I, I bet I've, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen this logo many times. <laughs> but I never thought about the logo itself. That's, that's beautiful. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Good job. I like how the Equinox
0: cover art does look like an abstract representation of the Equinox on a planet. Yes. And I'm very proud of some of my logos. But uh, you've now identified 20 some birds. Something like that. Who are? What are some of your other favorites?
1: <laughs> well, I happen to have them all here on my phone because I learned that if you hold the off switch and the volume down button at the same time, my phone will go and take a picture of whatever's on the screen. Oh. So I've got them cataloged and I've got tons of them. Red-billed woodpecker. Will the app tell you like the biographical information as well on the animals? Oh, yeah, because you can click on a link and go to... That um, is neat. Yeah, the online reference. I got a Carolina chickadee. I got a crow and a mockingbird, another cardinal song, because there's several different cardinal songs. The tufted titmouse. The tufted titmouse is not a bird. Yes, it is. Really? I thought it was a mouse. No, no, no. That's not how that works? No, 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 no. no. Anything can be anything these days. I got the Carolina wren, because they were nesting on my back porch, and the bird would sit on top of the nesting box and make calls, and I stick the phone slightly out the door and record it. The problem is, they're easy to forget. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard that. What was that again? And oh, yeah. And and so you had to redo it. Hmm. Yeah, American Robin. um. I do love the
0: sound of the American Robin. And I think that was the first bird that really caught my eye. I just thought that they looked really neat. And um, I like that song where the robin has the duet with Mary Poppins. Yes. Is that the American Robin? (laughs) Stupid
1: man. I'm so stupid. It's a
0: picture of the screenshot. <laughs> I was trying to hit the play button. <laughs> Duh, it's a
1: JPEG.
0: But it's does not, the does what? the app not like collect that in your yeah, in your account? It, it does, but not in the app, I'm yeah, yeah. in yeah. my photo, photo directory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm <am> a scientist.
0: <laughs> well, screenshots have fooled me before too. Okay. you ever use screenshots just to get into the, onto a plane in the airport? You take a picture of your ticket in case you lose it in your emails, and then you just use the screenshot to have that scanned when you're
1: <laughs> at the gate? I never thought of that before.
0: Yeah, it's a huge way to save time and effort, because what if the app doesn't work when you're at the gate? That's embarrassing to hold up the line.
1: That's happened to me several times. Just get a screenshot. It's working, 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 die. Yes. And you're right there, you're like, oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me as I reboot my phone. Right. Yep. It'll totally happen. It has. Okay.
0: Well, you wanted to discuss corals. It's something that has been burning on your mind. But I thought we had already said everything there was to know about corals from here to the Indian
1: Ocean. Actually, I thought we had said everything when it needs to be said about like gravity and orbits and things like that. But there's a lot more to say. And this just happens to overlap in my world of corals also. Interesting. So So this, this is
0: something new for you about corals plus... This is going to be so much more
1: a topic that brings up a crossover
0: lot. episode. It's like you really had to hear episode one and yeah. another episode about, you know, corals.
1: Yeah, we're going to build up. on that knowledge, but we're also going to bring in a lot of other subjects in science all together in one topic. Nice. And it's really cool how all this works out. All right. Well, we're, let's get into it. Okay. All right. Corals plus. Did you know the earth is slowing
0: down? I did. And let me give you a little story. This is Joseph in early high school reading a textbook, and there was this idea in the book that in the past, even from a Christian creationist perspective, that the earth may have had shorter days thousands of years ago. Now, I, I, I know it's not necessarily the best running theory nowadays, but the theory presented in this curriculum was that per se, maybe at the time of the life of Christ – that the day was less than 24 hours. And then if you go back to the time of Moses, it was a few hours shorter. Wow. So if you went back to, according to the curriculum.
1: I have never heard that before in a young earth sort of... Context. Context. Yeah. Because I would have no idea how you could slow the earth down that quickly.
0: Now, I haven't read the curriculum since I was 13, 14. Okay. But I remember reading it and thinking, this is astonishing because it was making a suggestion that maybe at the time of Adam, that a day was as short as 21 hours. Wow. So I didn't know what to think about that. And I never heard a scientist that could give a
1: comment. I'm actually, my mouth is hanging open. <laughs> Why on earth would anyone say that? I wonder what they were trying to, what riddle they were trying to solve by saying something like that. <sighs> Maybe it's what we're about to bring up. Okay. Interesting. I so wonder, shorter
0: days, but do you think it has significantly changed in the last 6,000 years? No.
1: Okay. I think it's changed a little bit. Okay. A little. Um, okay. An ice skater. An ice skater. She's you know on the ice and she's spinning and she pulls her arms in. What happens? There's a name for this force, but Cons- she's, conservation of angular momentum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: That and it just means they get super fast. She speeds up and then she sticks her arms out and slows dra- down dramatically. Yeah. The Earth can do that too, <laughs> but why? I, Earth can ice skate. Ice ages. I see. Ice skating and ice ages.
1: Oh, that's funny. I see the connection. That there. I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> During the ice age, ocean levels were about 300 feet lower than they are today. Yeah. And all that ice was piling up on the North Pole and the South Pole. It's sort of like the ice skater tucking in the arms. Exactly. It was a, I mean, billions of pounds of water.
0: <sighs> oh, okay, so are we talking about a noticeable difference then? Because that, that would be a
1: lot of water to affect if- the entire planet. If we had the scientific instruments we have today, back, you know, 6,000 years ago, four, 5,000 years ago, whenever the said ice age was, we would definitely notice. We noticed that the length of day changed after the Japanese earthquake that caused a big tsunami several years ago. The crust of the earth moved and it displaced enough mass. It actually changed the spin of the earth. Golly. <laughs> wow. but, but we only know that because of atomic clocks. And things like GPS satellites and things like that. I mean, we. Have you explained to our listeners
0: how atomic clocks work? Are we assuming that this is uh, some satellites that are responsible for atomic clocks and they're always reliable? Or, or are these things that we can measure with clocks on the ground? Both. Okay. So you can have an atomic clock that's not from a satellite. And would it be able to measure the difference from this, this ice shift as well?
1: It would have been. Okay. If we were around to measure it, there would have definitely have been a change. The Earth's. Would have sped up, it would have spun faster. Would this I
0: also affect things like gravity? Um, yes. But not in a noticeable way, well, except
1: with scientific instruments. The gravitational force depends upon how far you are from the center of the Earth. And if the Earth is turning faster, the equatorial bulge would be larger. You'd be farther away from the center if you're on the equator. Okay. But all that water moving to the poles means there's less mass around the equator, also. And I don't know how it would balance out. But yeah, all those things can be thrown into some formula somehow. and Someone could actually make an estimate hmm. of the day length. While we're on that,
0: now okay. you got my wheels turning. Why did the water go to the poles? Is that because as ice built up, it was just making hey. a bigger and bigger cube of ice? Yeah. And then the water was
1: draining from the portions closer to the equator. All the world's oceans went down hmm. and the ice built up on at high latitudes, shall we say.
0: And it clearly, yeah, it's, it's not like it was just in the North Pole, but the North Pole got pretty big because it came down
1: into other into the continents on all sides. Actually, um, the Arctic Ocean might not have been frozen during the Ice Age. Wow. There are islands 100 miles off the current northern coast of Siberia that are littered in elephant bones, We call them woolly mammoths. They were living there during the Ice Age. I would have just assumed that they got iced during the Ice Age. You'd assume that. But the creationist model anyway of the Ice Age means you need a lot of heat to evaporate the water that comes down as snow. The creationist model of the Ice Age anyway requires a lot of heat to evaporate the water that comes down as snow, but the snow only builds up on the interiors of continents and on mountain chains. Hmm. This isn't new knowledge for creationists. No. But you're just connecting the dots to some other science. I want to bring up another thing that I think most people understand this. Yeah. Famous book by Jules Verne. It's not the Bible then. No, no, no. Round the world in 80 Days. That one. Yeah. Okay. Great book. Have you read it? I I have, to okay. be honest. I, I read this one. <laughs> have you seen the Disney movie? Yeah. The anti-Christian, pro-Buddhist Disney movie. Well, yeah, but I mean I don't it remember makes it me very well. So mad. as an adult yeah. watching this, I mean, they mock openly mock Lord Kelvin. Lord Kelvin. Lord Kelvin, I mean we have the Kelvin scale of temperature. The you know, Kelvin. That Lord Kelvin. They make him look like a stooge. And then most of the way through the movie, they're in China and everyone's bowing to Buddha, including the lead actress. And she's all googly-eyed and smiling as she's bowing to Buddha. So weird. Uh, it just made me mad. Now, is that consistent in the book plus the movie? or oh, absolutely that? not. Yeah. Okay. No, it's modern spin. Yeah. Denigrate Christianity. Hmm. Yeah. Praise Buddha. Anyway, now this is going to be a plot, a plot spoiler here. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the book's over 100 years old. So if you haven't read it yet, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert is... Expired. Yeah, The setup is a moderately wealthy man makes a bet that back in the 1800s, he says, I can go around the world in 80 days. Now, that's not even science. It might have been fiction in the day, or maybe he sat down and said, you know, I think I could, if I do this and this and this and this, he, he might have added it up and figured it out. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's not like the Martian. It's based on science. This
1: is just yeah. fiction. Is it practical or not? Right. But what a cool question back then. And so he goes off on his quest. And when he comes back, the midnight bell is tolling in town. He didn't make it.
0: <laughs> but it was a noble effort.
1: He made it in 81 days. <laughs> well, he wakes up the next morning, goes about his day. And right at the end of the evening, he realizes he did make it. He had seen 80 sunsets, but London had only seen 79. Right. Because he went east. He went through India, through China, through North America, across the Atlantic Ocean. He chased, he didn't chase the sun. He ran toward the sun and he actually gained an extra sunset.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah.
1: And so that's the plot twist. The whole thing yeah, is yeah. at the end of the book. He's like, oh, I never, you never even I think of about it. it. And boom. And he actually, so he wins the bet at the last second. And it does sound like good science fiction at that point. It is amazing. Science. He went eastward. Now, look at the solar system from space. I go way up in space. and Look down from the Earth's north pole. Which way does the Earth go around the sun? Clockwise or counterclockwise? I picture it counterclockwise. Counterclockwise. Which way does the Earth rotate? Counterclockwise? Counterclockwise. The sun comes up in the east and sets in the west. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the Earth is turning... Yes, counterclockwise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't look that in my it. head.
0: Yeah.
1: The moon is also moving
0: counterclockwise. And it's not something that we necessarily notice just because the same side of the moon is always you, facing Earth. If
1: you'd stop the Earth. Mm-hmm. Then you would see the moon. you see the yeah, moon rotate. moving through the sky counterclockwise. Right. So the Earth has to turn a little bit more every day to catch up to where the moon is. So everything's going in the same direction. In the book, Around the World in 80 Days, they went counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. And had an extra day, didn't realize it. Okay, now all that is to say why tides work. <laughs> tides work because of around the world in 80 days? Well, no, it's the moon pulls on the earth. The earth pulls on the moon. Yeah. They're actually falling towards each other.
0: Falling? Why, why, why oh do you yeah. say
1: falling? Because if you, if you put the earth and the moon in space and held them there, like far away from the sun, there's nothing around at all, just an earth and a moon, make them 250,000 miles apart, mm-hmm. and then let go. Such as they are. What would happen? The uh, gravitational forces draw them together. Yeah, and they smash together. Now, so they are falling towards each other. They just happen to be moving sideways. So they Enough always that miss. they just don't. They always miss. Mm. It's the same way if, um, if you drop a rock, it moves toward the earth. Mm-hmm. If you throw a rock, it moves toward the earth. Even though, yeah. And yeah. it would hit the earth in the same amount of time as if you dropped it. Mm-hmm. If you shot a rock in a cannon, you might theoretically be able to shoot it over the horizon. It would always be falling but it just might miss the Earth. So when you say miss the Earth,
0: it may just keep going through the atmosphere and well, beyond?
1: Um, okay, let's use the moon as an example because there's no atmosphere, right? You, you can throw a rock in the moon. It'll go in a nice parabolic arch and mm. hit the Earth again. Right. Shoot it in a cannon, go in a parabolic arch, and if you do it hard enough... It misses. It just it it misses. curves it around It'll always the be falling toward the moon, but it can't hit the moon because it's moving sideways too fast. Right. And it becomes a circular... Orbit. You can literally orbit the moon one foot above the moon if you had a clear path. So go up a big above the highest boulder or the highest hill on the moon and you could orbit and just skim the surface. Now you got me wondering, do we have something like a satellite that orbits the moon? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter.
0: I forget about that. That has
1: taken all the pictures of the Apollo landing sites. We even see their footprints. Oh, that's so cool. It's unbelievable. So we already have an example of an object doing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's not on the surface. It's high up. Yeah,
0: yeah, they never wanted to, like, crash into Mount Moon. No, that'd be bad.
1: All right, so the Earth is falling toward the Moon. The Moon is falling toward the Earth. Sure. Even though the Earth doesn't move... Like ice skaters. In some ways. Yeah. But even though the Earth doesn't move much, we are definitely falling toward the Moon. It is pulling us toward itself. We are pulling the Moon toward us. It works both ways. Okay. All right. Because... Of all this. Uh Uh-huh. The Earth is a big rock, right? Yes. But isn't it true in gravity that things that are closer accelerate faster? There's more gravitational force when you're closer? Yes. So shouldn't the close side of the Earth fall toward the moon faster than the far side of the Earth? Oh, as big as it is, it theoretically could. It actually does a little bit. The Earth does stretch a little bit. Even the rocks, they stretch a little bit. Yeah, it's pretty minor, but it could, yeah. It could be three feet sometimes. Whoa. But
0: yeah, well, the, the water, now you're talking about the water. Yeah, now. but the water is free to move.
1: Yes. But water doesn't stretch and you can't lift water off the surface of the, you know, off the bottom of the ocean. There's not gonna be a, a gap there or anything, right? Yeah, not
0: like a superhero movie or something.
1: No, no, no. Be, Somebody with water powers. Yeah, that'd be crazy. So the water right under the moon doesn't move toward the moon, but the water's to the left and the right. They're bullying, being pulled toward the moon, but they're being pulled sideways. They actually wrap around the earth and go toward the moon. And the water flows okay. in that direction, and it yeah. makes a
0: bulge under the moon. The water, yeah,
1: the w- amount of water on the side facing the moon. Yes. Because that, that, those waters are falling toward the moon faster than the earth itself. Of course it is. Yeah. But on the far side, those waters aren't falling toward the moon that fast. So what we have is three things. Water on the close side, the earth, and water on the far side. Water on the close side, what do you mean? The water on the side closest to the moon falls toward the moon faster than the earth. Mm-hmm. The earth falls towards the moon faster than the water on the far side. Right. So the water on the far side looks like it's bulging up, but really it's lagging behind. It's not falling toward the moon as fast. Okay. It's yeah. a weird way to think about it, but that explains the tides. Yes. Okay. All right. So we, now we have tides and we have earth rotating. The earth is rotating the same direction the moon is orbiting the earth. The moon is lifting water, if you think about it that way, up. And then the earth is rotating. But as that happens, see, the, I mean, the moon rotates once a month, orbits once a month. The earth rotates as once a As we have established, a day, almost a month. Yeah. And, and the earth rotates once a day. Mm-hmm. So as the earth is very quickly rotating under the moon, the tides are getting lifted up and then smashing into continents. Right. Yeah. That's at the coastlines. And it causes drag. Drag? Because as that bulge piles up on one side of the continent, it kind of gets left behind. Yeah. And now the moon, it, it, it gets left behind. Now the moon is behind it and is pulling on the water, but the water can't move because there's a continent in the way. And that little hill, the moon is pulling. Yeah. And there's a hill there. And yeah. It, it's going in the wrong direction. It slows the earth down. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's pulling places and the place it's pulling is always changing. And so a place it was previously
1: pulling is now not being pulled. That's true. The entire effect depends upon how much shallow water there is near the equator. That's where the greatest effect of this is. So hot tides at the North and South Pole, they don't mean that much. But when you have tides, you know, in the temperate, in the tropical locations, they literally slow the earth down and speed the moon up. Speed the moon up? Because that bulge of water is the moon is pulling it. The water is pulling on the moon. Yeah. And the earth is turning and that bulge of water yanks the moon forward mm. and slows the earth
0: down. So does this mean that as it's constantly going through this cycle every day or over the months, that th- because of the push and pull that ultimately as the millennias go by, it's able to force planet earth to not slow down very quickly? Like if it, if this pull and push was not taking place in general over thousands of years. Would
1: Earth slow down more quickly over time? The amount of slowing depends upon how far away the moon is and how much shallow seas there are because you need that drag. Deep oceans don't have much of a tide at all. And it makes it very difficult to calculate, but we can currently measure how much the Earth is slowing down, how much the moon is speeding up, and how far away the moon is. See, that energy has to go somewhere right? There's a a law in physics. You can't destroy energy. You can convert it to other forms of energy, but it must be conserved. Conservation of energy is a law, period. That's why perpetual motion machines will never work. So we have the earth slowing down, the angular momentum. There's a lot of energy being transferred somewhere. The moon is not rotating. It's one face is always pointing toward the earth. It rotates once a month. And so it's not going to spinning the moon any faster. It's going into the gravitational potential energy of the moon. It's just this weird thing where the moon is moving away from us. The energy is not going to, you know, it's slowing the earth down, but it's not speeding the moon up. It's moving the moon away from us.
0: So would that be something that we could tell with the naked eye if we could just glimpse into a day 6,000 years ago versus today?
1: No. But if NASA astronauts happen to leave a corner reflector mirror on the moon, oh, which they did, we could bounce lasers off the moon and measure how long it takes to come back. Laser interferometry. Yeah. Measuring the speed of a laser. Absolutely. And so we know that the moon is moving away from us. Not much. And even by, in, even in, cent, in century mark, not much. But we can definitely measure it. And we know that the Earth is slowing down. Not by much. You have to it over centuries. But we know per year how much it's slowing down. Now, is this a pretty good
0: example of how we know that the universe is not more than... It will, or should I say that the solar system is not more than a few tens of thousands of years old? Because if we went back in time enough, millions of years, the moon would just be too close. Too strangely chaotic for oceans and yes and no
1: pushes yes and no yeah it is true that the moon can't get too close to the earth there's something called the roche limit the roche and that is we know the gravitational attraction of all the moon particles the force of gravity on the moon if you get a little too close to the earth the earth's gravity on one side of the moon is greater than the moon's self-gravity compared to the other side and the moon would break up so you can't get too close or you fall apart Are there
0: any examples of planets plus their moons where we can actually see this elsewhere in
1: space? Rings of Saturn? Yeah. Probably not. Okay. Because there are a lot of things closer in than the rings. Um, I don't know. Depends on the distance, but it also depends on how fast the Earth is rotating because we have geosynchronous satellites, right? Yes. Those satellites orbit the Earth in 24 hours, which means they never move if they're on the equator. If they're at, at a higher latitude, they will actually go up and down every day. Because they're on an elliptical orbit, and it looks like they're moving north and south, but they're always left and right in the same place in the sky. Right. East and west are always in the same place. Okay, so we have geosynchronous satellites. Mm-hmm. The moon could be geosynchronous, but it depends on how fast the Earth is spinning. If the Earth stopped spinning, let's say the Earth turned once a year, geosynchrony would have to be really far away for something to orbit the Earth once a year. If the Earth is moving really fast, something has to be a lot closer in to orbit the same speed that the Earth is rotating. I think that most
0: people wouldn't have thought of that because they would have imagined that the Earth's own gravitational force, just by being a giant rock, plus the moon's velocity and its gravity, is enough to just... Keep the moon in its orbit, as it is. Yeah, we're not even taking into account the rotation of the Earth, plus the w- the water, the bodies of water, plus the effect of mountains and continents in the way of the water. And now you're saying there's a noticeable way that the Earth's rotation in a single day affects the moon's orbit and its speed.
1: Yeah, it's all really crazy. But There's a lot happening. We haven't even gotten the corals yet. Yeah, because I was going to
0: say... Oh, we're this, getting there. We're getting there. What does this got to do with going around the Earth in 80 days? And what does this got to do with ice caps in the Ice Age? We have to ease into the physics and ease into the... Next, year, next year you're going to tell me that coral grew on woolly mammoths or something.
1: <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. All right, so we have a very complex system. If you take the moon today and you measure how fast it's receding, you can back calculate it and conclude that the Earth-Moon system can't be more than a few million years old. Because any older, it would be inside the Roche limit and whole thing falls apart. So that's a giant mystery, a huge physics mystery for the millions of years idea. Now, the out clause is that it all depends upon the distribution of the continents. Oh, right. So plate tectonics, Gondwana, Laurentia, all the, you know, the old, you know, supposed continental organizations that changes the amount of drag. And so now all bets are off. So you have to recalculate everything. And it's, it's extremely complicated. And honestly... I don't think anyone can do it.
0: Yeah, so you're saying it's not like human genetics where you can understand genetics well enough to put together Eve's genome, but just by understanding mutations and all the information in genes. It's a lot more complicated than that, yeah. Yeah, okay. Because it's not like earthquakes always happen in the same places and all the continents are drifting at the same rates in the same directions exactly or that they're all a distribution of the same amount of open exposed land exactly because mountains are various and valleys are various
1: exactly very smart good analysis so the creationist argument that the earth moon system can't be tens of millions of years old is true except we can't know
0: Mm mm-hmm
1: okay now the evolutionary answer is, oh, this and this and this, but, you know, you're, they're just... Um, it's not like there's evidence for it, but they're just theorizing. Yeah, theoretically, there are ways to get around the problem. Fine. So it's not, it's not a slam-dunk argument anymore. So if conditions were different in the past, there would be less there could be a tidal wave. slowing of the Earth's rotation. All right, now we're getting to corals.
0: You're going to tell me that the corals are pulling the moon towards our ice caps.
1: And the holy mouse No. There is an old argument that since the Earth is slowing down, that means that in the past, it must have been rotating faster. Do you say this is an old argument? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, it has to be true because we know the moon is slowing the Earth down. It's not much now, but if you stretch it out over, you know, hundreds of millions of years, it's going to have a big effect. Okay, so the slowdown would have been at a much more accelerated slowing down rate. Back in the day, in the evolutionary Paleozoic era, people estimate there was 400 days per year instead of 365.
0: What? Okay, so the rotation was faster than our orbit around the sun.
1: Yes. We, we, since we're rotating faster in one year, we would rotate more times. Yeah. So
0: the, the, yeah. so the time it took us to get around the sun wasn't all that different. But the time it took for the Earth to spin was, was faster.
1: Was less, like a 22-hour day.
0: And that So if you just truncate a day by two hours, if it's that much faster, then it's able to ha- be how many days in a year? 400 and what? About 400-ish. That's amazing. I like rounded off numbers. None of this 365
1: stuff. That's right. Well, I said ish. Yeah. Because oh. remember, it changes over time. Okay. As well, we, we might
0: as well go back to 365.
1: That's okay. I like that. 0.25. Because oh, of leap year. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, sir. So. All right. So... We have this argument that the Earth is rotating slower now than in the past, and there would have been more days in the past per year. So geologists go looking, and one of the big guys in the coral reef world, Wells, W E L L S, big name in the coral reef world, 1962, 1963, he studies some Paleozoic corals and he concludes 392 days in a year. What? Slam what? dunk. Oh, okay. Paleozoic. Wow! Many millions of years ago, he says, 392 days in a year. Yeah, okay. So it sounds like a great argument. Uh, BioLogos, they had um, a poster that they made once. Can you introduce BioLogos for our listeners? Uh, BioLogos is an organization started by Dr. Francis Collins, who's director of the Human Genome Project, director of the National Institutes of Health now. Okay. And several other people. Um, and basically, they set this thing up to counter Young earth creationism and the sciences. And they've been working really hard as you know, theistic evolutionists. We've written a lot on creation.com. There's going to be a lot of show notes for this one, by the way, because I've written several articles on this exact topic.
0: Next, you're going to tell me that there are six stones the universe created to control gravity, time, and oceans. And, and Thanos is after them. Oh yeah, I have one in my back pocket. Don't tell him.
1: Anyway, <clears throat> so this organization called BioLogos, and they're an old, you know, we call them an old, old Earth organization if you want to, but whatever. They came out with a poster a couple years ago, you know, X number of reasons why we know the Earth is millions of years old. And one of them was coral banding. So this is like
0: a tree ring is coral banding is comparable?
1: That's what people think. Okay. And they're basing it on Wells' conclusions.
0: What, so in order to see a coral band, would you just like cut it in? you know, and see the rings on the inside? Is that the idea?
1: You think so. Okay. That's how it's painted in the literature, and is how it's it's brought to us in the media.
0: See, the thing is, though, I, I think of coral as being more akin to bushes than trees. They just got a lot of spindly branches.
1: So... For the branching corals, what about the boulder corals? Boulder corals. I hadn't Smooth taken that surface. Into as smooth as a bald man's head. Okay. Then. And about the same size and shape, too, interestingly. <laughs> No no relation. No, of course not. Not in the human genome, But there are, there are, there are boulder corals or branching corals. There then, are thinly branching corals and thickly branching corals and everything in between. So are they just that different
0: from the branching corals then? Like the, the, the boulder corals would have a very different result? For, um,
1: for this argument, you wouldn't be able to use a branching coral. Okay. Most branching corals anyway. Okay. Because I didn't
0: think so. That, that, that's where my mind was
1: going. But as a coral grows... For like, you know, a big, I have seen single coral colonies bigger than your bedroom. When you say colonies, one animal. Yeah. Bigger than your house. Yeah. One animal, one massive rock made by an animal. It's only a few millimeters thick, but it spreads out. It sheets out across a massive surface. And as it grows, it's putting calcium carbonate down underneath its surface. So that's a skeleton it's actually an exoskeleton. And it's only on the bottom
0: that is so wild. It sounds like something out of an alien sci-fi film.
1: Oh, yeah. These, these would make a great, if you, if you zoomed up on them and made them big, this would make a great alien because they're vicious predators on a tiny little scale. <laughs> anyway, we have this sheet of tissue that's making a rock. And year after year after year, it grows bigger and, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and is leaving stuff behind. And the stuff it's leaving behind is a skeleton which might record a record of growth rate. Now here's where it gets tricky. You can take a a drill and core a coral colony. I've done this. You take a hole saw on an air drill with a scuba tank under your arm and and you drill underwater and you can take a core out of a colony. It's really cool. If you slice that thin and put it under an x-ray, you can see dense bands and non-dense bands. You can actually do a CAT scan of it or a CT scan and you can get density bands. But it's not tree rings because it's vertical, right? Trees are horizontal rings. This is a vertical coral as it's growing up, sometimes growing faster, sometimes growing slower. Okay, I'm with you so far. Okay. Or, see, here's the question. We don't necessarily know what the density bands are. It's the skeleton in that area is thicker than in other areas. Is that because it didn't have as much food? Was the water too cold? If it was up to
0: me, I would have assumed it was variables like that. Like if there was a good year for
1: food or a good year for growth, another year's bad. But some of the corals are clearly annual. Some of them put density bands down, denser bands down in the winter. Some of them put denser bands down in the summer. But they're clearly annual because you can take a coral colony, put a plastic bag around it and put a stain, a specific purplish stain in there and let it, you know, fill up the water around the coral for a while. It'll soak into the skeleton.
0: And it'll affect all of it down. It will,
1: it'll, it'll, well, no, our CSA- just the surface of the skeleton. Okay. Then you come back several years later and take a core and under fluorescent light, you can see the band plus everything that's grown since. Wow. It's really cool. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about, about these Paleozoic corals. It's nothing to do with it at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The crazy thing is that there's two. You ba- really buried the lead. I'm waiting for this. Well, we have, there's actually several more bandings we have to talk about too. Okay. If this is a coral that's any growing, any coral reef growing near a river mouth, even maybe 100 miles away from the river mouth, but if the water from the river is mixing with the seawater and flowing out to the coral reef, there's a lot of tannins, broken down leaves, brown like tea. Yeah, it's like tea. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The tannins in the water will soak into the coral skeleton. Coral likes tea. And sometimes under a black light, you can see fluorescent bands, reddish fluorescent bands from like the rainy season and the dry season or a particular big storm that had, you know, maybe a hurricane or something, washed a lot of brown water out into the reef. It'll stain the coral skeleton. Totally different type of banding. It has nothing to do with the growth rates. Okay. So does that mean it kind of confuses the data? No, because it looks different. Okay. But when I hear reporters talking about these things, they jumble it all together. They're calling bands, bands.
0: They're all just bands. Yeah, they're all just
1: bands. And then there's two basic ways to grow for a coral. Some of them literally are sitting on top of their skeleton. So there'll be, there'll be if there's like a polyp, there's a cup. Think of like a Dixie cup mm-hmm. stuck into a rock. But then there's, there's pieces of coral tissue connecting all the Dixie cups. So it's only on the surface. And when it wants to grow higher, the bottom of the corals lifts up. It'll put down a new floor. And then a little while later, lift up again and put down a new floor. A little while later, lift up again and put down a new floor. Well, the spacing between those floors probably affects the density of the skeleton. Hmm. So how fast is it reflooring? But there's other corals where they permeate the skeleton. Maybe the first centimeter or so, there's rock there. But the little coral gooey stuff is actually in channels and holes in the rock. Okay. And so when it grows, it just kind of oozes upwards and lays more floor down. It's a totally different growth style. Ah. In the same type of
0: coral. Or in Different species.
1: Type. Okay. Different different families. Different branches of the coral family tree.
0: Yeah. As different as like, say, a robin to your Or an Yeah, eagle. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly.
1: All right. So we have diversity of growth form in corals. We also have diversity in lifestyles. There are some corals that live only on the wave-swept, shallow fore-reef. Those are the ones those scuba divers like to go see. There are other corals that live in brackish, muddy water in seagrass beds. Hmm. I had a a roommate in college. He's from Germany in in grad school. And he came back from a field trip to Florida Keys. And he's hopping up and down. He's saying, I can finally explain the coral reefs of Germany. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, in my area, every year, farmers would dredge up or uh, plow up coral heads in their fields. And he goes, I've seen them now in the wild. Because between... Key Largo, Florida, one of the northern Florida Keys, and a mangrove island offshore was a flat mud bank with lots of seagrass, only maybe a foot or two deep. And he said, all through that seagrass bed are Parites finger coral. Prytis is a genus, and just, they yeah. look literally like fingers. Okay. He says they're everywhere, and it's exactly the same thing the farmers are dredging up in, in Germany.
0: Off the coast?
1: Well away from the no, coast? No, inland, in the middle of the continent. Yeah. Okay. So what this was, it was an embayment probably from the Mediterranean, early post-flood, and corals grew, and then the water went down because of the Ice Age and never came back up all the way again, and all these corals are now marooned and buried in dirt yeah, on land. Wow. All right, this is corals. You're going to see live. there's corals on the moon. Oh, that'd be awesome. Good <laughs> oh, <bit> sci-fi. Big <laughs> rah, scary corals eating the astronauts. No, uh, all right, so... I Actually, I just watched with my sister last week Avatar for the second time. Mm-hmm. Obviously there are Christmas tree worms. Like his first night, he touches this curly thing that pops down into the ground. Yeah. That is a Christmas tree worm. I've seen thousands of them. Every time I see them on the reef, I gotta go up and make them pop down. Hmm. And there's other things in there. Obviously this guy pulled from the coral world. Wow. So cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so now we're talking about backwater muddy areas. The corals that live there tend to have different life cycles. They tend to be quick reproducers. They tend not to do the massive broadcast spawning that the, the, the corals on the reef do. They will not release eggs and sperm into the water, you know, billions and billions of them at the same time. They have internal fertilization, and which means there's male and female colonies, interestingly. Wow. And the little babies will grow inside the parent and then during the full moon, swim out the mouth and swim away and land and boom, you get a brand new coral. Wow. So you don't have to go through the fertilization and all the cleavage cycles and gastrulation and blastulation and all those complicated things in embryogenesis. It happens inside the coral. So
0: when the offspring is leaving, is that a relatively quick process for it to swim away? You said with full moon? There's the full moon again that we talked about last episode. Yeah. Is that a relatively quick swim for a coral They can offspring? literally land right next to the parent. Okay, so it's, it's not like it's like really on a journey, like baby spiders far away from its its mother.
1: The other corals the yeah. broadcast spawners. Those those larvae will float for a month, at least weeks. Wow! Before they can <laughs> land anywhere, so they do not land on the same reef. Wow! But these other corals, they're ready to go as soon as they pop out. You can look under a microscope and you can see them swimming around inside the parent coral. Wow! Oh, that is amazing. You remember the cartoon, the Shmoo? No, <laughs> the Shmoo. Old, I'm dating myself here. It actually predates me too, but it's a ghosty thing, sort of like Casper. But it was a shmoo. I knew about Casper. Okay, take away the arms and the eyeballs of Casper, and that's what a baby coral looks like. Okay, it's like a fat bowling pin. Yeah, and they have a top and a bottom, and they swim because they have cilia, and they they land and they root and they grow into a coral. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have different forms of coral, different growth styles, different life strategies, all this crazy stuff. Now, let's talk about Paleozoic corals. Now, Paleozoic, that means old life, Paleozoic. This is before dinosaurs. In in the evolutionary dating scheme and in their fossil record, Paleozoic is really old stuff. Okay. There are some corals that, they call them horn corals. They're about as big as your thumb. Tabulate corals, maybe as big as your laptop. Maybe if you're lucky. That's why they're called tabula corals. Reminds me of like a smart tablet. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. what happens is they, they grow in, in layers. Looks like tables stacked on top of each other. Oh. They're really, really cool looking. The biggest one I've ever seen is in a photograph in one of these papers that'll be referenced on, in the show notes. And is at a museum in Germany. It's maybe three feet across. Three feet across? Maybe. Wow. Easy to grow in the 1600 years between creation and the flood. Easy to grow. So a big mystery. There are no coral reefs in the ancient fossil record. Uh, okay, so there you're saying... There are corals, that, yeah. but there are no reefs. There's no Great Barrier Reef yeah. in the Paleozoic. There's no Great Barrier Reef in the Mesozoic. There are things that geologists call reefs. They might have sponges in them or something like that. It's just a pile of calcium carbonate. and Very often, it's calcium carbonate mud, which is not a coral reef. Coral reef is rock. So the theory
0: goes that there would have been corals in the Paleozoic, but where are they?
1: There, just are, there are coral-like organisms in the Paleozoic. Okay. But they're not the same thing as the modern corals. So in the, the, the theoretical,
0: in the, in the evolutionary theory, then the modern corals are the descendants, the evolved version of whatever their ancestors were in the Paleozoic?
1: Nobody knows. Because there's a giant gap in the fossil record between the end of the Paleozoic and the early Mesozoic. With Mesozoic, we have the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. And then the end of the Cretaceous is supposedly the, the big meteor kills off the dinosaurs. Mm. But there's some Triassic corals that look like modern corals. But they're supposedly millions of years after the other corals disappear. So there's no direct link in the geology. But also, coral skeletons are made of calcium carbonate. Same thing cement is made of. Same thing chalk is made of. Calcium carbonate has different crystalline forms. Modern corals are made of something called aragonite. Just fancy word. When you take aragonite and expose it to fresh water, it dissolves. So it's like chalk that dissolves. Yeah. And it'll recrystallize in a form we call calcite. Calcite's almost clear. It's more translucent. Aragonite's white. Different crystalline forms of calcium carbonate. Aragonite okay. and calcite. Okay. Modern reef corals have aragonite skeletons. These ancient Paleozoic corals had calcite skeletons. So there's different biochemistry. So they're an extinct type of coral, but we've got them. We can see them. We know what they look like. Yeah. And we know it's calcite skeleton. Because if you take a right, but, but they're extinct. And that they're a creature. Wow. Yeah. They're extinct. They have a different biochemistry. They also have a different growth form. Modern corals are they're called hexacorals. A coral, even though it looks like it's round, the polyp does a left and a right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the, the little larvae that swims has a top and a bottom. They're not radially symmetric. Like you look at a jellyfish, right? A jellyfish looks like it's a circle. Yeah. It's not radially symmetric. There's a left and a right to it. Really?
0: Yeah. Hmm, okay, so given the like the not exactly organs, but the
1: its internals exactly, even though it's bulbous on the top, you take a coral colony and there's if you look at it, there's there's these ridges, looks like a, slices of a pizza, but they're not sliced in eight pieces, they're sliced in six pieces. There's a, a septa, a, a ridge that runs top to bottom, and then two more. It's like an X, mm-hmm. and you dry them into six pieces. Right, they're called the hexacorals. These ancient Paleozoic corals are in sets of five. Pentacorals.
0: Oh man. Okay. Okay. So I have. I'm just gonna get this out there. If you're one of our regular listeners, maybe your mind went here too. Could this be based on a mutation? Could these uh, extinct corals have just been the ancestors of modern coral? But thanks to a mutation, they have changed the way that they grow and
1: their. That is how the evolutionists would explain it.
0: Okay, so they would say that the modern coral is just thanks to a mutation was possibly. Yeah, yeah, okay. So
1: that it's not but, extinct. But they wouldn't know yeah. when. Because if corals are soft-bodied, and before they started making skeletons in the evolutionary record, they were supposedly soft-bodied, we don't know what they would have looked like or how long ago the supposed mutation would have happened. It's all guesswork. All right, but here's the point. They look oh, different. I've been waiting for this. Yeah, Drum roll, please. They look different. They have a different chemistry, and they're extinct. And now we want to use them to figure out the day length. Oh. Everything about them is different than modern
0: corals. When you say we want to, do you mean, is this a bad idea or do you mean this is a very good
1: idea? Well, (laughs) Wells, the great coral reef guy, 1962, publishes a paper and he claims that there are 392 days in a year.
0: Based on
1: banding. But it's not banding like the earlier banding we talked about. He's looking at the outside of the skeleton and he's seeing these ridges. Sometimes they're closer together than others. He goes, oh, and somehow he goes and counts 392 bands per year. And that's what all of this is based on. That seems really arbitrary. So mm-hmm. Am I wrong? Jerry Coyne writes a book called Why Evolution is True. And he uses this as an example, how we know the earth is millions of years old. BioLogos uses this on their poster, how we know the earth is millions of years old. Lots and lots of people repeat this claim from 1962. And it all goes back to whales. Whales. Say it again. Wells, Not whales. Wells. And it all goes back to Wells. Yes. And he was contradicted the next year in print. Wait, wait, wait. Wells was? Yes. During, well, he, during his lifetime. But yes. So he's <laughs> oh one of the greats. And it's a guy named on you know, Almost a Nobody. Now he's a scientist and he's around for decades, but no one knows about him. He's a guy named Scruton. Scruton. And he doesn't, doesn't have a name that rings like Wells. No, it doesn't. The next year he publishes the paper. He says, I cannot find any annual bands. Any annual band. So what would an annual band mean? It has a different appearance? Don't know. Nobody knows what Wells was looking at. But he says, but I see monthly signatures. Monthly signatures? Remember the corals that live in the muddy areas that release larvae according to the full moon monthly? (gasps) They're putting a lot of energy into baby production and they're doing it on a monthly cycle. Yeah. So maybe they're trading off skeletal growth for baby production. So it creates its monthly band. Maybe. Remember, these are extinct corals that are different than all modern corals. We can only make analogs and guesses. Ah, uh, yeah, good but point. But the claim was contradicted the year after it was published. He says there are no annual bands. And what he, what this guy did is, he says, oh, and these monthly things, the same number of days per month as in a modern month. Man. Okay. So clearly this claim is wrong. Now, granted, if the moon was closer. And his name was Scruton?
0: Yeah. Okay, so is this like a new find, what Scruton said? Is this,
1: you just came across? Um, No, because as soon as I heard this, I said, wait a second, this isn't true. I knew from my my PhD work, all these coral classes I've taken. Okay. And coral geology and coral physiology and, and, yeah, I mean, PhD level things. I said, wait a second, I knew who Wells is. And I looked it up and it didn't take me too long to find this other guy. And boom, answered. Wells was making something up, and he was wrong. And so this claim is being bandied about by certain scientific organizations, and it was disproven mm. 50 years ago. Mm. Ouch. Yeah. So how many days in a year in the past? I have no idea. It all depends upon how old the Earth is, how old the moon is, how long it's been receding, what the recession rate is through a bunch of unknown parameters. And the biggest example that they have is an extinct, strange, little muddy water animal that's different than any animal alive today. So this is actually, I just submitted an article to creation.com on this exact topic, but it's my third one. First one went in the journal creation and then someone wrote a question. I, I tried to fix it and answer a little better. And then someone else just sent me one of my good friends said, my friend is reading this. He's in, he's in graduate school now in geology. And he's saying this stuff, and I don't know how to answer it. And this is Jerry Coyne's book. And it looks like my friend has just said, okay, I give up. Evolution is true. <laughs> but the argument, this, now, there's a lot of other arguments out there. Fine. But this particular argument doesn't actually work. Yeah. But in order to get, look what we had to do. We had to talk about physics and gravity and geology, physiology, chemistry in order to answer the question. Yeah. Wow. My friends, this is why science is important. Yeah. This is is why thoroughness is important. This is why thoroughness is important and why science is so fun, too. I mean, this is like a gigantic, you know, Sherlock Holmes mystery. Mm -hmm. But in order to get there, you got to dig.
0: You'd have to know a thing or two about the moon before you figure this out about corals. That's right.
1: That's awesome. Wow. My favorite physics thing is what causes tides. It took me forever. I mean, literally years to figure out how to explain it. Every example I've ever heard before, they're wrong. Or if they do say it right, it's so complicated, I'm centripetal and centrifugal forces and this and that, ah, uh, no, it's just, the earth is falling toward the moon. The close side falls faster than the far side, but the earth can't fall at different speeds because it's a rock, but the water can. So water on the close side to the moon is falling faster than the earth, and the earth is falling faster than the water on the far side. And you get a bulge on both sides. That's wow. A, that's, that's, that's how you explain tides.
0: Mm. This is
1: huge. Well, we are running out of time. Ah, too bad. Are okay. you ready?
0: Are you ready to wrap up? I, I feel like I feel well, like you just
1: laid the groundwork for so much more. I've said everything I wanted to say on this topic. Okay. But each one of the points can just be explored deeper and more fully. So yeah, it could be.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us on this quest. Rob, that was an amazing one. If you want to dig deeper into these topics, you can find all the links to stuff that Rob was discussing on the show notes uh, on the website or hop over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 13. That's where you're going to find the show notes. And But if you're already in your podcast app, you'll find them right there. Those show notes are always along with the episode. And you should also check out Rob's science videos at biblicalgenetics.com or his Facebook page or his YouTube channel, where you can see the videos and join the discussions in the comments. And if you want to catch up with me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Equinox.
1: I'm glad we did that. That was fun.